Well, we welcome you to RUF, so glad y'all are here. Uh, all semester we've been looking at the topic of relationships, and we've had several little subsections within the overarching semester. Um, and the, these next three weeks leading up to Thanksgiving are going to be about uh, marriage and dating. And we're going to uh, tonight talk about marriage and the meaning of marriage. And uh, next week may continue talking about marriage, but we'll to transition and talk about dating and, and what the Bible says about dating, which is nothing because they didn't date in the time of the Bible. So um, we'll figure out what to do with that. But um, hopefully it's not just me making stuff up. That would be the worst thing possible. Full disclaimer here. When I, um, when I talk about marriage, when, when you preach from the Bible about marriage as one who is married, uh, it's terrifying because uh, anytime you study kind of the, the what marriage should look like, inevitably you reflect on yourself and... Uh, your own demeanor and the way that you have done marriage. And uh, I do not stand up here as one who is killing it in this area by any means. Uh, I am uh, failing often and always. I have a very uh, loving and gracious wife, and then she fails me. And, and that's the beauty of marriage is that we have this place of safety where we can forgive one another and, and seek to move forward. Um, but it's hard to talk about it. So just a disclaimer on that. Also, uh, the last couple weeks, um, we've talked about a number of difficult things regarding sex and sexuality. Uh, some of you may hate me at this point. Uh, that's okay. Um, uh, one of the things that I said about, about uh, dating and marriage is that if you, are, if you are in a relationship right now, a dating relationship, and you're physically or sexually involved in that person, I made just kind of this hyperbolic statement, and I said, you need to either break up or get married. And some of you took that and it kind of like freaked you out and jarred you and you really didn't know what to do with that. If you want to talk to me about what I meant by that, um, please grab me and let's have coffee or lunch and talk about that. Um, I realize that that probably needs to be nuanced in a more helpful way than just saying it and then moving on. So, um, yes, I want to say that. Okay. With all those disclaimers, uh, let me get a, let, let's move forward in this. There was a, uh, an article written recently in the New York Times um, by a columnist named Tara Parker Pope, uh, which I found in Tim Keller's book, a uh, masterful book on marriage called The Meaning of Marriage. And her quote said this, said the notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore, she says. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of each spouse were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting. They want partners who help each one of them individually attain valued goals. Do you hear what she's saying about that? That in our culture, in, in the shift, not just our present culture, but the shift into the present culture that's happened has been one from, uh, for societies and centuries, even across societies, uh, co- across cultures, seeing marriage as an institution which itself you, you submit your own individual desires for the sake of the institution. 
And what she's saying has shifted in that as we've come to a place where, where we're sacrificing the institution for the sake of the individual desires. And she says that's a cosmic shift in the way that marriage has seen. She goes on and says this change has been revolutionary. And says, uh, really unashamedly, it has uh, changed so much. Marriage used to be a public institution for the common good of society, and now it is increasingly viewed as a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individuals. Marriage used to be about us, but now it's about me. But here's the, here's the, crushing, the crushing statement in her findings. She says this, Ironically, this newer view of marriage actually puts a crushing burden of expectation on marriage and on spouses in a way that more traditional understandings never did. And it leaves us desperately trapped between both unrealistic longings for marriage, but also terrible fears about marriage. Now tell me if that doesn't describe the way that many of you think about marriage, that that at the same time you have these deep longings for this thing called marriage, for this place and this, this relationship where you are fully known and fully loved and you're accepted in that place, and you long for that, but also you have these deep fears about being in this place that, that stifles your freedom and your individuality. Right? And as we talked about over the last few weeks, our, our cultural mantra is self-expressive individualism, that we get to do whatever we want to do, and if anyone else kind of infringes on that at all, that's the worst of all possible things. And so when you look at marriage, you start to say, ugh, that gets to be difficult because marriage, by definition, at least according to the Bible's definition, absolutely infringes on that personal autonomy. And it starts to suggest a model wherein we submit ourselves for the greater good of the other person and of the institution. So, um, <clears throat> so we dread marriage, yes, because it's difficult, but we also dream about it. We dream about a relationship where we are both deeply known and deeply loved. I think that's where most of us find ourselves. So let's do, uh, look at the Bible and see what, uh, what it says about marriage and see what might be uh, a way forward for us tonight. So let me pray for us and then we'll look at Ephesians chapter 15, sorry, chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. Let's, let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that as we consider your word and what it is that you say to us about marriage, that, that you would give us a, a realistic picture of what it is and what you designed it to be. I pray that you would give us a realistic look at our own hearts and you would challenge our hearts and the assumptions maybe that we have that, that aren't so great and that you would uh, challenge us there. But Lord, beyond that, I pray that you would lead us to the very one who you say has married us, even your son Jesus. And let us begin to even sniff the depths of that kind of love and commitment tonight so that we may be changed. In his name we pray, amen. Let's look at this passage together. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit of context because uh, in, in the Greek, this is like one huge run-on sentence that um, you kind of have to see it all to get, the, to get the gist of it. So Paul starts in verse 15 and says, Look carefully then and how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. 
Uh, so let me figure this out. Uh, and do not get drunk with wine that is... That's not what I put on here. I'm just going to read what I have on the screen. Okay. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let me stop there for a second and tell you what he's setting up so that you know what's coming. He's saying... He's encouraging us to be filled with the Spirit. Paul is addressing Christians and is saying, the most important thing about you as you move into marriage is that you are united to Christ so that He may fill you by His Spirit. And then he goes on and says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, His body, as, and is Himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the reading of God's inerrant and fallible word. This is a true story. I heard about this uh, last year. There was a wedding that happened in England. Uh, A 31-year-old woman decided that uh, she wanted to get uh, married, and it was out in this beautiful kind of uh, farmhouse, and there were about 50 people who attended this wedding. And the bride was standing in the back, beautifully adorned in her uh, wedding dress, And the music cranked up, and she began to slowly walk down the aisle. And as she approached the front, there was something very interesting about this wedding. That there was no groom up there. That as she walked down the aisle and came to the front, there was no one there to meet her. But this didn't throw off her or anyone else because this wedding, it didn't involve anyone else. And no one who was there thought there was going to be someone else there. And as she stood up here, this 31-year-old woman in London married herself. She stood up there with a priest and made vows to herself. And this sounds ridiculous, I realize, but it's a true story. She kissed herself in a mirror. She She exchanged rings with herself. And, you know, this raises, as bizarre as that sounds, and kissing a mirror, and as weird as that sounds, it raises a lot of questions. The biggest of which is this, what is marriage? What then is marriage? If that was considered to be a marriage, what even is it? Can you do that? Is there, um, does that make sense? And I realize that uh, increasingly we live in a culture that is uh, redefining marriage and seeing marriage in lots of different ways. Um, but really, it, it, even in it, whether, where you stand on the same-sex uh, marriage issue or not, most people would understand that At a minimum, marriage is between two people, that it involves someone else, 
to whom you're pledging yourself and making these vows. Well, what does the Bible say on this? The Bible says three things that we're going to look at tonight. The first is this, what marriage is. The second is what marriage does. And the third is what marriage shows. Okay, so what marriage is, what it does, and what it shows. So the first thing, what marriage is. Verse 31, I'm going to read it again for us. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This actually is an echo of the teaching in Genesis 2 where God lays out his framework for what marriage is. The man and the woman leave their previous family structures and they, and they cleave to one another. And we talked about that word. It's like a, it's, it's a bonding. It's a glue. It's a soldering themselves to one another. Right? And they're saying, and God is saying in Genesis 2, that that new relationship is so strong and it's so foundational that itself provides the stability for these two people to leave their existing family structures and move into this new relationship where they can mutually support and hold up and encourage one another. It's its own family making. It's a covenant. So what's a covenant? Covenant... Um, Some people try to describe a covenant as a contract. And so let me tell you why it's not a contract. How many of you guys have cell phone contracts with like AT&T or Verizon or somebody like that? Okay, most of us, right? Some of you have gotten smart and you're doing Boost Mobile or Republic and and we're all jealous. But you're jealous of us because we have iPhones and all that. Anyway, um, I have a contract with AT&T. And every couple years I have to re-up and, you know, we negotiate this thing. Inevitably they get more money from me and all this thing. But the contract works like this. As long as they are meeting my needs, I stick with them. And as long as I'm giving them money, they stick with me. And um, But at any time... I can leave that contract, right? Now, there may be some penalty to it. I can uh, pay the the contract breakage fee of thousands of dollars or whatever it is. Uh, But I can leave it if it's no longer serving my needs or if I found a better deal out there or something like that. That is a contract. And a lot of people think, even in our culture, that that's what marriage is. It's a contract, that we are agreeing to love one another But if the other person violates that sense of love or or contract in some way, then then they can cancel it, right? And if I find myself unhappy in the relationship or in the marriage, then I can get out of it. If a better option presents itself, then I can upgrade and leave. There may be some penalties and headaches involved, but I can always get out. According to the Bible, that is absolutely not what marriage is. It is not a contract of convenience. It's a covenant. It is not loyalty to an agreement. It is loyalty to a person. Okay? It's not loyalty to, excuse me, to an agreement. It's loyalty to a person. A covenant is making a public, permanent promise to exclusively love this one other person. A covenant is making a promise to exclusively and permanently love this one other person. Let me draw out two implications of that. The first one is this, that your feelings then are not what bind your relationship together. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was uh, a prisoner in uh, in Germany during the Second World War, uh, 
fairly infamous and was a prolific writer, even from jail, said that love doesn't sustain your marriage, but marriage sustains your love. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Love doesn't sustain your marriage, but marriage sustains your love. What Bonhoeffer is getting at is that when you are in marriage, when you enter into a marriage covenant, that there will be times when you fall out of love, when the emotions aren't there, when you don't like the other person. I love my wife, Sarah, but we both can attest to the fact that through the years there have been times when we don't like each other. We're frustrated with each other. And if marriage is nothing more than a place of convenience where you stick to one another so long as it's working out, then we would have bolted at numerous points along the way. But what Bonhoeffer's saying is that, that love doesn't fuel the marriage. Marriage, the covenant, fuels the love. That on those days or those weeks or those months when we look down and we're frustrated with one another or we're in the midst of lots of difficult decisions, we look at the promises, the visible signs of the promises that we've made and said, well, when I stood on that altar, I didn't say, I will love you as long as this works out for me. I said, I will love you no matter what. That is what a covenant is. And that's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about marriage. All the time we hear people... Uh, saying that they get divorced because of what? They fell out of love. We just, we didn't love each other anymore, and so we got divorced, right? And maybe, uh, sadly, tragically, that has been something that you heard from one of your parents. And in a very respectful and gentle way, I want to shake those people and say, when you say things like that, you have totally misunderstood what marriage is. That marriage is not this place that, is, uh, that it's built on love and, and on, uh, on emotion and on feelings and all these kinds of things. The feelings of love are not the things that sustain your marriage. The covenant is what sustains your love. Think about it like this. Marriage, then, is a greenhouse where your love grows, where it can be nurtured over time. Sometimes the plants will be in full bloom and there will be beautiful, fragrant uh, blossoms and, and petals and all of this stuff. But other times in a greenhouse, the plants go dormant. It doesn't mean that they're dead. They just go dormant and they aren't producing uh, foliage and they don't have flowers out there. Right? Marriage is a greenhouse. Through the, side, through the years and through the decades, sometimes it will be amazing beyond belief, and sometimes it will seem like it's lifeless, but it's not. It's waiting for the next season to come so that it can come alive again. Here is what I want you to understand on this before we move on. If you get married, not all of you will. We've been talking about a beautiful life and vision for singleness for some of you in the last few weeks. But if you do get married one day, you have to know that you will fall out of like with one another. You will fall out of like with one another. You might even fall out of love with one another. But marriage is not about liking and loving. Marriage is about a covenant. The feelings will change. The couple stands before one another and before the congregation and says, I will love you for better or worse, sickness or sorrow, health, plenty and want, all that stuff. It's not uh, them sitting there saying, I love you right now, and the way that you make me feel right now is so amazing. 
When you stand on the altar, you're promising to be there forever. Okay? And that means even when you put on weight after children, that means when you lose jobs, that means through all of it. Okay, that means that marriage then is fundamentally different from dating. Because in dating, you can leave whenever you want. We'll talk about this in the coming weeks. But dating is not a commitment. I don't care how many times you call each other boyfriend and girlfriend. I don't care how many promise rings you change. and I don't care what you do. Dating fundamentally is something where if you wake up the next morning and you decide that person's breath stinks, you can leave. If you wake up the next morning and some other guy is giving you more attention than, than your existing boyfriend is, you can peace out with little to no ramifications with that. Dating is not a covenant. It's not a commitment. It's a social construct by which we enter into to cover our insecurities. There's a plug for two weeks. Uh, <laughs> come back for the full hammer. Um, second implication of this is that marriage is a decision. Uh, many of us may be wondering at this point how to answer this question. Well, then, Brent, how will I know who to marry? If it's this covenant thing and if I'm promising to be with this person forever... How do I know who to marry? How will I know if it's the right person or not? And um, if you've been around the church for long, I know some of you are kind of new to all this, and that's great. Uh, But if you've been around the church for long, you've probably encountered this idea called the soulmate, which is, uh, (laughs) I'll refrain. Um, (laughs) The soulmate is crushing you. Let me just tell you that much. Because what the the idea of a soulmate tells you is that there's this one person walking out there somewhere in the world that is meant for you. And if you can just find them, they're going to complete like every crevice of your life and your soul. Right? And if you think that marriage is this quest to find that person, then you're going to be single for a long time. Or, or you're going to at some point in your life finally settle. And you'll never tell the person that, but you will functionally be thinking that you're settling for this other person. Uh, ben Folds, who I really used to love him, kind of start, stopped listening to him a lot. My friend named Matt Howell brought me back to this lyric. And he says this. Um, he sings a song called From Above. And there's a line there that says, It's not like they were ever actually unhappy in the lives they lived. He married Martha and she married Tom. Lest this vague notion that something was wrong, there was a naked absence, there was a phantom limb, an itch that could never be scratched. What's he saying? That these two people, they married other people and their lives were okay, but they had in their minds this idea that there was a soulmate. And so for the rest of their lives, they lived in this functional thought that this person's actually not the one who I was meant for. That they can't, they can't scratch that itch. That there's some part of me that should exist that doesn't. And so they live this unhappy existence because they had in their minds that there was a soulmate. And friends, the idea of a soulmate is not in the Bible. I'm sorry. Here's what is in the Bible. The Bible says that you will know that you have found the right person when you stand on that altar or on that stage or in that field in front of a minister before God and all of your friends and you say this, I will love you 
I will be with you. I don't care if you get fat. I don't care if you get a tire around your stomach because your testosterone leaves. I don't care if you put on 100 pounds after we have kids. I will be with you. And that's when you know that you found your mate. It's a promise. Marriage is a promise. It is a covenant. It is saying, I'm committing myself to you. That's hard. Because that doesn't feel like amazing. That doesn't feel like the movies. That doesn't feel like it's, it's super awesome. And here's what I'm going to tell you. That if you are dating someone and you've, um, you, you've gotten to know them. And look, there, there's hardly anything as fun as like the first month or two or three or four or five of dating where... You just have everything in common. I call it the you like water too stage because it's just like, oh my gosh, you like water? I like water. Ah, and you just have, you love it. And you love everything about each other. And, and you stay up till four in the morning and you are de- you are sure that you're soulmates because you still believe in soulmates. Um, you're just sure that this is everything. But I'm telling you guys, you should not talk about getting married in that stage. You shouldn't. Because... Inevitably, you are dressing up, you're putting on the best version of yourself, you're definitely repressing parts of your life that you don't want them to know about, you're spending more time straightening your hair, girls, I know that's a big deal, straightening your hair and putting on lots of makeup and stuff, and they just, you're trying to be this person to get this other person to like you, I get it, it's what we do, it's fine, but really after a while, you begin to get comfortable around that person, and you don't straighten your hair as much. And guys, you don't shower as often as you should. Maybe you just do a little splash-off thing. And, um, and you really begin to let your guard down. And you aren't watching your words quite as carefully. And you begin to begin to see a little more of each other in a very real way. And in that time, you begin to see the, the real person. And you begin to have to ask the question, well, if that's what marriage is, if marriage is choosing someone... Is this the person that I want to choose? If marriage isn't all about feelings, but it's about commitment, it's about a covenant, you begin to ask yourself the real question, is this the person that I want to choose to be with? Okay, so that's what marriage is. Let's talk about what marriage does. Let me read verses 25 through 27 again. Um, I'm just going to, look, there's so much here about the submission language and all that stuff. Come and ask me about it. We're not focusing there tonight. 25 through 27, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify, sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, he might present her to, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless uh, without blemish. Friends, God has set up marriage in such a way that that when you enter into it, if you enter into it, you begin to get transformed in a whole new way. Do you see that in this passage? The purpose of marriage is so that you would become holy and cleansed and washed and blameless. God has instituted marriage so that you will be changed. So that you'll be changed. This means then... That marriage is not primarily about your happiness. I am so sorry to be the first one to tell you that. Marriage is not primarily about your happiness. It is about your holiness. 
Marriage is not about your satisfaction, but about your sanctification. And one of God's purposes in marriage is to change you. How does this work out in real life? Well, there is a, uh, a study in 2002 uh, called the National Marriage Project, and there were lots of articles and things that were written after this. And one of the findings in this study saw that the number one factor that men named when, they, uh, when surveyed about this project in terms of what they desired as a, in a compatible spouse or mate, above all, number one, was they wanted someone who showed a willingness to take them as they are and not to change them. And that is so telling. That fundamentally, we often look at marriage as, I want to find someone who accepts me as me, certainly with all my flaws, and and that's right, but someone who accepts me as me and just lets me be me. And the Bible is promising you that marriage is not that. That marriage is this built-in institution of change whereby God is giving you one another as a gift so that you will change. Because, newsflash, you are not as awesome as you think you are. You're not. I love you. You're not. (laughs) There are things about you which are, quite frankly, are annoying. There are things about you which are selfish. There are things about you which are not the best version of you. And God says, I know all of those things about you. And so I'm going to put this other person in your life. Literally, you're going to be sleeping with them and getting naked with them as a means to show you that you need to change. And that is for your good. He uses marriage to expose how deep our sin is. And then it reaches down to the depths of our being to such a place and in such a way that we had no clue that we were that broken. He doesn't just do it to to hurt us, to injure us. He He does it to heal us and to change us. Okay, so how does this affect you guys? You guys, most of you aren't married. Well, I think it has tremendous implications on who you choose to marry and how you move about this. Because instead of approaching marriage um, like the way we do, where we essentially ask people to come and be awesome for us or be beautiful for us, and um, we invite them to make us a better person, like, hey, I don't want to change, but if you want to join me in my not changing project, I would love to have you. Um, Instead of seeing marriage and relationships that way, what marriage fundamentally becomes, and therefore what dating fundamentally becomes, is you looking at the people around you and saying, who is someone that I would be willing to join myself to so that I can make them be more Christ-like? And so that they can be the person who I invite into my life so that they can make me more Christ-like, more gentle more loving, more kind, more selfless. We have to stop asking the question, will this person make me happy and great? And we need to start asking the question, do I want to and am I willing to give myself away to make them great? Am I willing to give myself away to make that person more beautiful? So that's what marriage is. That's what marriage does. Lastly, what does marriage show us? 
Where do we get the power to think about dating and marriage this way? Verse 32, let's read it together. Paul comes to the end of this section and he says, Look, this mystery is profound. This is profound. And I'm talking to you and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Look, what Paul is doing in this teaching on marriage is he is absolutely talking about the love between a husband and a wife. And then he he kind of takes this little jujitsu move at the end and says, but I'm actually talking about how Jesus loves the church. In other words, what Paul is saying is that that marriage is supposed to be a picture, it's supposed to be a reenactment of the gospel, a living and breathing, real-life, visible picture of how God loves His people. And so, if marriage is a covenant, then that means that God relates to His people, His children, covenantally. What does that mean? This means that He has bound Himself to love you apart from your conditions. This means that if you are in Christ, this is how God loves you in a covenantal way. That He loves you if you went to church this week, and if you read your Bible today, and if you came to RUF tonight, and if you did all of these things and you went on a mission trip last spring break, He loves you if you did that. And if you are in Christ, He loves you if you slept with your boyfriend last night, if you are up to your eyeballs in porn, if you had to have someone hold your hair back last Friday night because you got so drunk you couldn't even stand up. Friends, if you are in Christ, God has bound Himself to you unconditionally. Regardless of your successes or your failures, He is saying, I am never leaving you or forsaking you. And I am committed to give everything that I am to make you into the person that you were created to be. There's a whole book in the Bible about this very picture, and it's the book of Hosea. And the book of Hosea, it's in the Old Testament, and it's about this guy who marries the town whore. That's not my word, that's the Bible's word. Gomer is called a whore. After they get married, she keeps cheating on him over and over again. She has children from other men. And through all of her heartbreaking infidelity, he stays committed to her. And the whole point of that book of the Bible is is God's way of saying this. You're the whore. You cheat on me. You love so many other things other than me with your whole heart. But I am absolutely committed to you. I am not going anywhere. My promise is to love you. Now think with me for just a minute. If you actually believe that that was true of you, what would that do for you? If you believe that the depths of God's love for you reached down into the ugliness and the rebellion of your own heart and said, you know what? I'm committed to you because of what I did for you at the cross. I'm committed to you and to your beauty and to your eventual joy and being made more and more into the image of Jesus that I'm going to love you persistently, patiently, forever. Friends, if you are convinced that that is how God loves you, then I'm going to suggest that that begins to change the way that you think about laying down your life for other people. Because if that's the motivational structure inside you, if that's your fundamental definition of love, 
then the way that you think about loving other people begins to change. That when you date, and and maybe one day when you get married, you begin to say, you know what, I can stay with this person because God has stayed with me. That I can love this person even when they've hurt me deeply because God stayed with me when I hurt Him deeply. Friends, God did not... He did not call you to be His child because you were lovely. He called you to be His child to make you lovely. He didn't call you and adopt you into His family because you were beautiful. He did it to make you beautiful. I'm going to close with this. Um, A number of years ago, I was at... uh, I was actually at, at... a summer conference with RUF. I was a student at, at OU my senior year, and there was a campus minister there who was uh, leading a seminar about the church of all places, or of all, of all things. And uh, he was talking about the picture of the church in Scripture. And, and if you don't know, at the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation, there's this picture of, of what's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the Apostle John gets this vision that at the end of time, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to welcome his bride, the church, and he's going to marry her in a sense and have the full intimacy of, of love that, um, that is somewhat pictured in, in the marriage relationship we have here on earth with one another. But he said this, and, and I always missed the picture because the way that I thought about weddings was, you look at the bride, rightly so, in all of her beauty and her purity and, and, the, and the white gown and, and all of that stuff. And everybody, right, the doors swing open and they look at the bride and it's all about her. And the way that I always thought about it was that that's Jesus, that we all look at Jesus as the one who is so beautiful and we stand up here in all of our ugliness and shame and failure. But Jesus is the beautiful one and we can't wait for him to come and take us. But do you realize that that's a flipping of the metaphor? That the Bible says that Jesus is the groom who is standing at the front of the church welcoming His bride, you, me, in all of our filth that we bring to the table. But what the Bible tells us is that He clothes us in white garments. He takes all of your filth and your pollution and your shame and your guilt and your never doing a relationship right, whatever, and He clothes you in His righteousness and and His knees are buckled at the front of the sanctuary weeping because of what He gets in you. Do you understand that that's how Jesus sees you? That that is the depth of His love for you? It is not because you are good. It is because He is good. It is not because you are faithful. It is because He is faithful. And friends, when you begin to realize that that is what is at the heart of the marriage in Scripture, you can begin to see that can be at what's the heart of, of the marriage that you may enter into in this life. That you are accepting someone who is not perfect that you are loving them and you are making them more and more beautiful by laying down your life for them, just as Christ laid down His life for you. And that gives us hope. Let's pray together.